0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Mark Thornton. Mark has over 20 years of experience in meditation and has become one of the world's leading executive meditation coaches, specializing in finding the best techniques for busy people. He's the author of the Sounds True audio learning program and the book, Meditation in a New York Minute, Super Calm for the Super Busy. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Mark and I spoke about his personal journey from being an investment banker to being a meditation coach and the ways that he helps his clients find both a sense of purpose and a sense of meaningful connection with the people that matter most to them. Mark also offers several practices that could be used at any time of the day to create calm even in the midst of the chaos of our busy lives. Here's my insightful and calming conversation with Mark Thornton. Mark, I know many people who have reported to me that they've come back from meditation retreats, back into the workplace, and they're able to maintain the kind of calm and composure they discovered during their meditation retreat for the first day, maybe the second day. But then before you know it, they've snapped. They're just back to how stressed out they were before they went on their meditation retreat. And as an executive meditation coach, I'm wondering what you would say to such a person.
1: <laughs> yes, so that is an extremely common experience. And the reason is that the environment that you live in doesn't change um and the environment you live in is absolutely critically different from the environment that you learn these meditation practices in i mentioned that for one reason and that is that um for many years i expected it to be very very different i expected you know what i learned in the quiet country ashram with the trees and the nature and the blowing and the brooks and the rivers and things and And I just expected that I would discover something that I could directly translate back to walking down Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. And um, that expectation continuously disappointed me. The relief that happened for me was finding techniques that were suitable for actually where I lived, where I worked, and where I spent most of my time. And for me, the big shift came, I think, maybe around 12 years ago when I'd spent nearly a decade in like, you know, working for an investment bank, you know, I used to be CEO of J.P. Morgan in London, um, and had spent many years going to these retreats as well. And I always felt there was something wrong with me, like, oh my God, I'm not committed enough, I'm not deep enough, I'm not, you know, disciplined enough to keep the practice going. And really what, what I found out was that I actually had the wrong techniques. An example from my own personal experience was Vipassana. Now, Vipassana is very beautiful, and when I learned it, it had three key ingredients. It had a teacher, it had a community, and it had a very specific structure that was mm-hmm. all designed to encourage the flowering of Vipassana. None of those things were available to me back in Manhattan, where I lived at the time. So I went on a search to find out what were the techniques that could really support where i was where i lived where i worked and supported my lifestyle and i was delighted to come up you know find a number of techniques 19 of which are are in the book and the relief for me was that they were all things that i could do anywhere anytime and the power for that was um it actually enabled me to the techniques were very simple, they're very easy, they're very immediate. And the powerful thing for me was doing it, defining practices I could do for short amounts of time, um, but cumulatively. And the power for that was that it meant that you know, for nearly an hour a day, but cumulatively, I was spending time breaking up the constant chatter of the mind. Now, in kind of my experience, that meant that my mind went from you know, being preoccupied and suffering, to a moment, just a moment of pause, openness, ease, relaxation, depth, and back to the manic mind again, and then another pause when I was picking up the phone, just one quick breath before I did that. And that process, like the constant interruption of the mind, in my experience, created some profound... um, openings and awareness and experiences that were as rich and as deep as what I'd experienced in these pretty quiet, uh, quiet country retreat centers. And that was a huge relief for me, because what I, what I found was I found practices to fit, my, to fit my life, because I couldn't change my life to fit the lifestyle of an ashram. Big, big distinction
0: for me. I, I think this is a, some really important points you're making, and I want to hear more about these different techniques and we'll we'll try some here together but one question I have right off the bat is do you think these techniques work if you haven't had the kind of in-depth formal training can you just suddenly use on-the-spot techniques without any training deeper in meditation to draw on on the spot
1: yes so yes that's a great question so in my experience meditation is a function of time so you know if you do it for a one minute you get one minute benefit and the more you practice the more you do it and the way you build up time is through finding some of the like the power sources for your practice like what really deeply will shift your practice so you know a book is is useful a cd is useful um, but the big kind of mother loads of, of source and energy for your practice are things like finding a teacher. That's a really powerful thing. Finding a community is equally as kind of as powerful. And if you don't have those things, it is just a lot harder. It really is just a lot harder. Now that said, when you when you kind of um, when you strip away all, all the techniques, at their essence, Tammy, they they are in human simple and natural like it literally is breath it literally is a shift a, quite a small shift of your attention you know allowing awareness which is already there but experience it experiencing it in a different way so in a way both are true um, it's it's something you're already doing you are already focusing you are already breathing in a certain way you are already already aware in a certain way so it seems to be partly true that in some way a a slight shift of those things can bring very very immediate benefits and over time to really deepen you need to plug into those power points those deep vortexes of of which will supercharge your practice such as finding a teacher that's really beautiful for you finding a community where you can bring your challenges and your struggles and your and your very human uh, problems.
0: And can you share now with us some of the techniques that we could practice on the spot so we get a sense of what you're talking about?
1: Sure, sure. So I was down at the U.S. Army base in Fort Hood in Texas, and here's a technique that I showed um, the soldiers down there. And this is a practice to to do during the downtime, so when they didn't need to be focused on something else. It's a simple practice of using your breath and simply using your breath in a slightly different way. And it's different primarily because of the intention you set before you practice. So if we were to practice now, we could place both feet on the floor. We could feel the contact of our body with what is supporting us. And then really, for a moment, just setting your intention for the next 15, 20 seconds. And the intention can be, this is my moment for pause. This is my intention for dropping deeper. My intention is for connecting to the heart. My intention is for an exhale. My intention is for... Experiencing that sense of, of deeper connection with, of oneness. So, taking just a moment just to set that intention, and that really drives everything that we'll now talk about. So, when it comes to the breath, after we set the intention, we can simply slow the breath in, the inhale for slow, easy, natural, and relaxed count of to three. So, we'll breathe in together, one, two, three. Then we pause for one, and then we exhale. Own natural pauses and breath. And that simple practice is something that you can do very frequently throughout the day. You know, setting the attention, simple,
0: subtle shift
1: to the breath allows greater openness.
0: Wonderful. I-, I can see how helpful that is. At the same time, I'm imagining different workplace scenarios where I'm not sure a technique like that would interrupt the intensity of the experience I might be having. For example, let's say I discover that I've made a costly mistake and that I'm going to have to tell uh, my supervisor about this costly mistake, or I'm going to have to tell an author about uh, some error I've made in the publication of their work that I know is going to upset them. Imagine I'm drawing from real life experiences. Anyway, and uh, <laughs> here, you know, this technique I'm going to pause. I can, I can do it, but at the still the the anxiety and fear that I'm feeling is much bigger than the pause. The one, two, three, pause. H- how can you help me then?
1: Sure. So, uh, in that very, very specific example, you may need other other, other practices. So, um, the simple one, two, three breath is very useful for, you know, some anxiety and, and stress. But if you've got quite an acute dramatic situation Yeah. Then you may need some both some other practices and some and some practical <laughs> practical advice. Like a lot of the nervousness around communicating with an author author or if there's a costly mistake is sometimes we really need just practical workplace skills to know how to communicate those things which I'm sure you have, Tammy. Um, so another, another practice that might, might be useful is a practice called grounding. And this was really useful whenever the emotions, whenever the emotions are, have a certain quality of intensity. And by being grounded, we find a way for that in, to experience that intensity and for it to um, be grounded. And just like earthing an electrical current, it um, stabilizes that current in some way. So in the example of if there's some costly mistake and you're about to communicate with the author, about to pick up the phone or face-to-face, a really useful thing is to take a moment to allow all those feelings that you're feeling, the the nervousness, the anxiety, and to experience them whilst grounding. Now, grounding is to be aware of everything that's inside your physical body and everything that's outside you at the same time. That's very different. So the, the benefits of doing something like that is you you allow your system to experience intensity safely. What happens when you experience everything on the inside of you and the outside of you at the same time, and simply some, it's like a circuit breaker for stopping the mind from creating like exaggerated scenarios, inflated thinking, Um, like uh, an amygdala hijack where you've got adrenaline coursing through your system and it's coming up with all these wild imaginations that may or or may not be true. So I found actually a combination of those two techniques is actually quite useful. I'll give you an example. So I used to work on the trading room floor of J.P. Morgan, so super busy, hectic um, place. And in a personal review I was about to do with with a trader, it was going to be very, very difficult, I would allow myself to notice all of the colors, hear all the sounds, notice any fragrances that I could notice outside, at the same time noticing all of the sensations in my physical body, including the ones that were stressful, the ones that were open, and the ones that were neutral. And in doing that, that created some sense of feeling more present, more connected. And at the same time, I added on to that doing some of those uh, deeper breaths, But again, allowed my meeting with that guy, when I walked in the room, what I had was I wasn't bringing in the baggage of a whole lot of extra energy and adrenaline and stress. And there was something about being present that allowed that conversation uh, to be easier. Like uh, said another way, what was possible from me being in a grounded state was very different from when I was in an agitated, anxious, worried, mildly panicked state. And it made me more flexible in my conversation. It made me more creative in coming up with questions like, well, how how can I make this, um, what are some of the options and solutions I can see for this situation, for this guy? So that's an example of how to use something like that.
0: It's interesting you called the technique a kind of circuit breaker. What did you mean by that?
1: So there's lots of, um, a very common part of our wiring as humans is you know, the fight, flight, or freeze response. And that means that when there's some external trigger, um, there are neural pathways in the bay- brain largely driven by um, the amygdala, which is a survival mechanism. And
0: The amygdala is a, a part of the brain?
1: Uh... Yeah, it's a, it's a part of the brain, and it secretes very powerful hormones. Uh-huh. And when as humans, as a species, we were evolving, this was the trigger that, you know, when we saw the brushes, a snap in the woods, we would turn around and we, our entire body would be ready in case it was a, a threat, like a tiger. And it would like flood, it has a number of different things, one of the things it would flood the, the body with adrenaline, it would um, re- remove such a remove blood from the extremities, it would start to Increase the heart rate, increase the respiratory rate, so our, our system will be ready to survive, ready ready to either run, to fight, or to freeze at the moment of like a deer freezes in the headlights to be to be safe. Um, so these programs, these old programs, we carry into into our modern life. So you know, we an upset from our boss, the amygdala kicks kicks in, and we have this you know quite exaggerated response. Um, we, we respond as if it's something life-threatening that's happening, when it's actually just a, a difficult conversation we could be having. So some of these meditation practices are really, very powerful for putting the brakes on that, that response, and allowing a different response. And that different response is actually really, really useful in your in your daily life. A lot of some of the suffering that we have on the planet comes from, you know, people unable to control some of these, their reactivity to situations. Someone cuts you off on the freeway, your wife hasn't put the lid on the toothpaste again, that causes often very ex- exaggerated responses, exaggerated, unnecessary and quite painful responses that with more awareness we can start to s- feel when those triggers are coming and start to find ways to um, create some more ease around them.
0: Now, as an executive meditation coach, I imagine that you hear some interesting confessions from successful executives about what's really in their mind and on their heart, what's really bothering them. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little insight into that. I mean, I've shared with you, you know, an example of a workplace challenge, you know, feeling anxious about a costly mistake. But what are some of the real challenges that the people you're consulting with are reporting?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Tammy. So I was working for a um, an investment bank a couple of months ago. I um, actually can't, can't mention the name of the bank. But some of the problems, I mean, I was actually shocked going, you know, teaching these, these men and women. Some of the problems they had would be one woman said, I sleep with my blackberry on my chest. There's a man in my house. I think it's my husband. I have two children. I have no relationship with. Um, can you help? You know, another guy would say that he um, that he had this thing, Tammy, <laughs> where he was continually che- compulsively checking the share price of his com- of the company. Like his his identity and self worth was so linked to the value of the stock of the company that he found it like. Um, very challenging to <laughs> to to get away from this very compulsive behaviour. So the kind of common for me, the common thread that runs through the challenges that executives have are uh, one is a search for um, uh, real purpose and real meaning in their life. Second thing is uh, relationships, and particularly relationships with uh, partners and uh, children. Many many executives are saying. You know, I am a master of the universe at my work, and I have almost no relationship with my children, uh, and and that's painful. That's sort of exquisitely painful. Um, those those two things, purpose and relationships, are the are the, are kind of the the big missing that's happening in corporate America.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, makes good sense. I'd love to go into both of them for a moment. How do you help sure. people find a sense of genuine purpose?
1: So what I do with executives is I get them to look um, not really at the values, but the values that they embody. So for example, one thing I do is I, I put up a whole lot of values on the screen from a company I say, how many people would like to work with this company? And you know, it's excellence and teamwork and all that stuff like that. And then I say, these are the values from Enron. So many corporates have these values which simply aren't embodied. They actually aren't lived. So then I say, you know, let's look look at the values you have around uh, contribution and meaning. And then who, who, who are you most drawn to contribute to? And how do you do that? And how frequently do you do that? And unsurprisingly, like, the contribution rate... Actually, I want to pause for a moment. Even the question of contribution and purpose and meaning is is very infrequent and rare in corporate America. It really is, you know. So just simply through asking the question, like, you know, where are you moved to contribute to? What are the values you have around uh, giving back? And then what are the ways in which you want to do that? And I was amazed. Last night, Tammy, I ran a ran a group of seven business guys here in L.A. And I created a game, and the game was called Difference and we had 30 minutes and I wanted to play the game to see what could seven guys come up with uh, to contribute to one particular cause which happened to be an orphanage in Chennai in India and in that 30 minutes these guys had come up with an amazing brainstorming with solutions, they wanted to have garage sales that were like on a national basis and one day of the year dedicated to this stuff. they wanted to they found things in the house they could give. It was just this amazing outpouring of um, of uh, of ideas and support. So I mention that story because it's not that people don't want to give and don't have skills and resources to give. It's just that the question has very rarely been asked of them. And when it is asked, they respond very immediately and very, very passionately to that.
0: Okay, and then this question related to quality and connection in our relationships. Mm -hmm. How do you help people who are working 70, 80 hours a week shift into connection with their partner and their kids? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, I you know, relationships is um, an extremely big area and it requires actually a lot of training so if there are no uh, quick fixes with this thing it, it really is quite a it's quite a training to do some things that are, that are helpful is um, two things that, that have been very helpful that can work quite immediately the first one is uh, honoring and that is for in, in the case of say a uh, uh, Minutes, a couple will will sit down opposite each other, and they will simply say, you know, for we're going to spend some time, and first person is going to speak for three minutes, just saying, completing the sentence. I honour, I honour you for, and then come up with something. I honour you for, I honour you for, and then the other person goes, and that simple practice of just reminding people that they're in a relationship where there is respect and they're honoured and valued is, is a really useful container. The other really useful thing um, is the. I'm sorry, you know, the number one thing that's stopping closeness between, uh, in again, in, in couples in a committed relationship, is some of the wounding that people have have, have come into it, and yeah. that that baggage is kept for a long, long, long time unless it's unless it's addressed, and um, everything else can be like just. Papering over the cracks and unless you address some of those some of those core things.
0: It's interesting how our, our conversation started talking about, you know, helping people find those on the spot moments where they can recenter themselves in the midst of their work life, but pretty quickly it developed into talking about a sense of purpose and connection in relationships. And I, I wonder if you can address that, that connection, that you know, somehow there's something about how busy we keep ourselves that we're not looking at these things that are bubbling under the surface or what your view is of that
1: we have created a society that is built and based around distraction that's the in the story like like our life is structured around not looking within like we've literally built our lives so we we never have to look within i mean literally literally, we can spend our entire entire life and never have a reflective moment there 's just non stop twenty four seven distraction information entertainment that we never never ever have to have that courage to pause and, and look within
0: that 's interesting that you use the courage word why do you think it takes courage
1: uh, or just from my experience um, from my experience, you know, meditators are the most some of the most courageous people around because they are every day they are prepared to look within and to face things that um, many people never never face. So, for example, when when we sit, we really are aware of what's going on in our system, and that can be. You know, pleasant, neutral or unpleasant and it takes courage to experience often very challenging and, and unpleasant things and to have that um, and, and to be honest to have that sense of still being held like at the ground of your being that despite the appearance and the concern and the distraction of all the, all the wounding and the suffering that underneath that, in the, in the deepest part of your being, you, know, you are still held, you are still safe. And that, that takes practice and, uh, and courage to, to walk through some of those storms.
0: We are still held by, how would you finish that sentence, we're held by?
1: Yeah, held by love, held by grace, held by the divine.
0: What would you say to somebody who is relatively new to meditation who says that when they stop and they tune in, they—that's not what they connect to. They don't feel held. That's not their first response.
1: Yeah, yeah. And to be honest, many many people have the—that's an extremely common experience. You know, I close my eyes, I do these stupid breaths, and have a guess what? All I'm aware of is even more thoughts, even more feelings that i'm uncomfortable with and and that that is part of it so the invitation the really the invitation to me is that um through practice through allowing yourself those moments of pause there are moments of grace where you you get glimpses of that perspective moments when you can step out of that the train of thought finding those spaces between the thought the portholes just at the moment of the pauses of the breath where there are glimpses and they may only be fleeting glimpses that wow there is something just different in the quality of the experience here and the thousand thoughts you know what I say to, to people who I'm teaching it's like of course they're there it's natural that they're there it's normal that they're there it's okay that they're there you know we've spent decades lifetimes Focusing in a certain way and, and when we stop to reflect like it's normal that they're there and the invitation is just simply to return to the practice whether it's the breath practice whether it's the a focus practice whether it's an awareness practice and through doing that the analogy I use in the book is is the analogy of the chain that each moment is just one like pulling on one more link of the chain and when a thousand thoughts come just remembering to allow distraction then to return again return again, return again and that's,
0: that's the invitation Mark, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your own journey from Chief Operating Officer for J.P. Morgan Chase in London to Meditation Coach uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that transformation happened for you?
1: Yeah it. It's- Started actually telling um, when I was 13. I remember having, you know, I had my father had was diagnosed with cancer and given three months to live when I was 12, and he had some um, people come and pray with him, and he got better and had a big conversion experience, and he actually lived for another 25 years. And one night when I was 13, he came in and said, "Oh, can I can I pray with you?" and I really didn't have a relationship with my dad very much I said okay if you you want to, whatever Um, and as soon as he started to pray I I had an awakening and that experience has been like the defining experience in my life so
0: Can you tell us what you mean? What actually happened when you were 13?
1: Sure, so the experience I had was um, waking up in a dimension called bliss so there was There was bliss, there was intense sadness, intense joy, both at the same time. Um, Words are difficult to describe it. There was a um, very intense expansion, oneness. The experience left me changed. Like it, It changed me forever. Everything in my life from that moment has either been passionately exploring that mystery or just as passionately running away from it. So, you know, like many people who have an awakening, I then became an investment banker.
0: Okay, now hold on a second. So here you are, you're 13, your father comes into the room. You're lying down in bed, you're sitting up. Like, What's what's actually happening?
1: Sitting up, I was sitting up in, I was in bed, sitting up.
0: So you're sitting up, and did you pray with your father, or not particularly? And did, did No, this... I
1: had no idea. I, I had no idea what, what was
0: happening. So he was praying on the side of the bed and then this just was like kapow?
1: Literally, yeah. He did a thing called laying uh-huh. on of hands. So he had hands on the top of my head. And the moment his hands touched my head, I was just, yeah.
0: Right. Okay. So this happens at age 13 and then later in your life, at your 20s or whatever, you decide, yeah, ha- ha- help me through that transition.
1: <laughs> so um, so I, I, had, I had this experience I you know, I, started, I started as a banker. I would divide my holidays, Tammy, between two things. Two weeks a year I'd be spending in spiritual retreats. The other two weeks I'd spend basically partying, pretty much. Um, and eventually what happened is my thirst for, um, for spirit uh, just became increasingly, increasingly stronger and stronger. Strangely, the more successful I became in my investment banking career, the more um, uh, thirsty my spirit became for for itself, really. So, and when I discovered these practices that I could do throughout my day, that's when my life started to change because I could start to weave into the fabric of my everyday life, you know, these simple practices to remember to connect and that was so transformative for me that eventually I ended up having these experiences um, like awakening experiences at my desk on the training room floor whilst chairing meetings whilst walking down the street standing on the subway like literally these very very intense um, experiences would would like descend in some way and um, I was actually very very freaked out by them because they were very, they were very um, rich and nourishing and beautiful, but also it was, it was very intense, and I wasn't quite sure what was happening to me. So
0: can you give me an example? Again, you're, you're sitting at your desk and maybe you're doing this oh, one, two, three, pause breathing technique, something like that, and then what would the awakening experience be like?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one experience. Um, it was. I think it was probably the experience that um, that made it very clear that, that I needed to be doing something else. I was chairing actually chairing a meeting, so I was actually in charge of the meeting, and so I was running it. I had to introduce the speakers and all that stuff. And after I'd introduced the speakers, I was doing a practice which is simply um, feeling into the centre of my chest, like really allowing my attention to drop like an anchor into the center of my chest really like rooting the attention attention there and allowing breath to come into that space as well and what i noticed that with my eyes open that i had this experience Tammy, of being able to see um like a radiant light that was flooding into the room and literally was like filling filling the room i know this sounds extremely unusual and that and uh, I'm just assuming that we're friends. That I yeah, I'm. I'm still with you, here. with you.
0: I'm, I'm totally with you. <laughs> okay.
1: And um, it was completely shocking to me because it was completely natural. Like it was just like a drop of water falling into the ocean. It was it had that same sense of naturalness to it. It wasn't like you know fireworks and things. It was completely natural and normal, and very evident. It was. And it was. I had my eyes open, so I wasn't. You know, it collapsed under my desk. I wasn't um, hallucinating. I was very present, eyes open, having this experience. And then when it was my turn to engage in the meeting again, I had to introduce the second speaker and follow the agenda and keep track of time and all that stuff. I could do it. And I, I could switch very simply from, you know, quite a direct... Awakening experience. To, right now we're focused. Now I'm going to introduce so and so. He's going to talk about Luxembourg seedcabs. And, and it was quite, it was quite effortless. And then when I returned again to that practice, I, I, and I, with my eyes open, the same experience would return. And I mention that because that's when I really, really in my bones understood that, you know, what the sages and masters have always said is that, you know, that, that the divine is everywhere like literally everywhere. We just need different eyes to see it and different ears to hear it. And it really, I felt that in my bones. And I thought, I I have to share this experience. And again, that message isn't my message, that's that's an ancient message that every teacher talks about. Um, But I had that experience of having it in the bones and I I really wanted to share that that thing with people because for years I thought it was, you know, my spiritual aliveness and life lived on at the foot of a teacher or in an ashram or in a retreat center, and
0: that's actually not true well interestingly you you could have made the decision I want to stay at j p. Morgan, and this experience is available throughout the day, and I want to you know be here and tune into this. Whenever spontaneously, but yet it was this desire to really become a teacher yourself and communicate and coach others that was the driving force.
1: Um, much simpler than that. I, I had a, a burning desire to write a book, and I remember sitting opposite my desk and I told him, I said, oh, "You know, I want to ask for a year off to write my book." And we got along extremely well, and he was a great friend of mine. and and uh, he said, "Well, we only give time off if you're pregnant." And I said, well, "I'm trying to
0: <laughs> you were pregnant with a book,
1: trying to give birth to a book." He said, "That doesn't work here." And so I, I wasn't prepared for that response at all. Um, and when he said that, I felt this—I had this visceral ex- experience. I felt this like intuitive burning sensation around uh, my heart center, and I just knew that I would leave and not go back. And it was just a logical, intuitive um, thing that I, that I had to leave. So then my, my plan was very simple, simply just to write the book. Then I wrote the book and then um, I kept bumping into people who were in companies who wanted some teaching and meditation. And my first client was the New York Times and a journalist there who, who had insomnia for a decade. And... I was so stressed and her mind was so strong she could outthink prescription drugs and wanted a hand with that, and that's how it started.
0: Now, I want to track back to your experience when you were 13 because you you said something very interesting to me about it. You said that there was this great bliss, but also I think the words you, you used were a great sadness or sorrow that it included, the bliss included this, Sadness, and I, I'm curious about that. That's not something people often say in quite that way.
1: Yeah, yeah It's very. Uh, these experiences tell me are, are very, very hard to describe. Yeah. Um, but my my experience was that, like, I was there was um, tears, and there were tears of, there were tears of joy. There were tears of of, um, of coming home, of having found home in some way you know there were the tears, tears of a seeker who'd been unconsciously seeking for lifetimes that was my experience who'd found who'd found home and at the same time there was uh, intense sorrow for the um for all the ways in which i'd been lost in some way you know, There was the sorrow for the journey sorrow for the struggle of the journey both of those happened were happening at exactly the same time.
0: Did you talk to your father about your experience? <laughs>
1: uh, not that night i didn't I didn't at all. I, you know what happened very strangely was that i went went to sleep and I had this incredible um uh purging, and I was like violently ill like three times that night, like just violently violently ill. Um, and the next day, literally, it was, it was waking up new. And I, was, I thought, if, if that experience, the, the connecting with the divine, was like that, then I wanted to do more of that. So then I started to talk to my dad about what the hell happened, what does this mean? And so he, he really became my, my first teacher.
0: So Mark, I want to circle back to this idea of meditation in a New York minute, how Mm -hmm. some of these techniques that you're able to help people with can on the spot be, as you say, circuit breakers of whatever fight or flight mode we might be in. And I know in the book Meditation in a New York Minute, you offer something that you call anchors, that there are sort of these immediate anchoring activities that we can engage in. I'm wondering if you could help us develop an anchor or two uh, right here in this conversation that we can then refer to.
1: Oh, sure. Beautiful. So this is something I found really useful. So when doing a practice, any of the practices in the book, and like for example, just doing a, a breath practice we did earlier, when you start to feel some of those qualities of, of calm or openness, it's good to use an anchor. An anchor is simply a body um A posture such as you know touching the thumb and the forefinger together and that's simply like a little circuit that when we do that and when we're feeling something intense we and we use that anchor it simply allows the body it's like a uh, the body remembers that the next time we put the thumb and forefinger together we can actually it triggers that same experience for us in some way so um, and it's very simple to do so Literally, when I'd be practicing, any time I'd feel I'm doing the breath, I'm starting to relax, I'm starting to feel some of that openness, then thumb and forefinger, forefinger together. When I'd start to lose that, that quality or that experience, that feeling, then I would, I would release the thumb and the forefinger. And the feeling would come back. Da, da, da. And that's just continually building a, a very simple reminder. It's like some... You know, there are different theories and how it works, Tammy, it's just it's something that I've just found useful. I don't really understand how it works particularly, but it's something I've, I've found uh, that's been
0: useful. So I established the anchor by putting my, for example, thumb and first finger together touching each other when I'm in yeah. a particularly peaceful place and then that becomes the reference point for when I need it? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And as you continue to practice throughout the day, whenever you you can keep strengthening the anchor. So every time you experience that quality, you can thumb and forefinger together. Beautiful. You get distracted. An hour later, you're back to practice, and that experience just simply—it's another way to to anchor the experience in in your body. And and play with that and see if that see if that's helpful.
0: Now, Mark, before I let you go, because I love these kinds of little shortcuts. I'm curious if you can offer a couple more that have been really effective for you personally. Things that you actually use.
1: Oh, great! So this is one that that I used to do um, every morning in the subway, travelling into work. So it's, it's very useful if if you you know obviously if you're not driving a car. And this is one where I'd simply allow my eyes to close, then. If I was to very gently, with my forefinger on my right hand, just very gently touch the space in between the eyebrows, just if you just feel it, tell me there's a space which is just a little bit more sensitive. So there's just a very subtle sort of opening there. And just, I would just very lightly touch that to remind myself of that point. i bring my hand to the side. And I would lie with my eyes closed, allowing my eyes to look up at that point. It's like they look, both look up at that one point that I just touched. And that point is just simply an access point into a much deeper, richer, vaster space of who you actually are. It's like a very simple access point. And I could just... It was so delicious for me to do, just very gently touching the forehead, bringing the hand by the side, allowing the eyes to look up at that point. And that actually involves some, in a way, there's a little tiny bit of eye strain that happens with that. But what that does is it means your attention is now really anchored and focused in that very specific point. And from there, that is just that point is just a doorway into a deeper part of who you are. And so it's just allowing that attention to drop back inside. Mm-hmm. And I would do that just for 30 seconds. I would do that for maybe a minute. And in my experience, that always left me changed in some way. It was such a such a simple access point. Wonderful. Another great practice I would, I would very frequently do that's useful for work, was using my imagination to create the ideal outcome. And I was taught this many, many years ago, Tammy, I was I was kind of delighted to read in, read from Michael Phelps, the Olympic swimmer, that he was taught this technique um, for his, by his coach, And every time, every morning, he would spend time doing these visualizations, you know, imagining, like, literally, in very minute detail, like, stroke by stroke, how he would be swimming the race. So every morning, also, I would spend some part, some time, really creating in my imagination how I wanted to be, what I wanted to experience that day, you know, how focused I wanted to be, how much I wanted to get done, and that I found like really set my direction for the rest of the day. And again, very simple, closing the eyes, imagining an ideal scenario or outcome, allowing those feelings to be there as if, they were, as if they'd already were happening. Mm-hmm. And that, that really took a lot of the unnecessary stress out of my life.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. Just a couple more things I want to talk to you about, Mark. I know in the last couple of years with the economic downturn, many people who are quite successful have suffered economic loss in just astounding ways that they never would have imagined. And in that, I have heard from people that there was also an astounding, surprising loss of composure that even though they may have been people who had mastered a certain level of calm when it came to you know seeing their net worth cut in half or cut by a third uh, whatever level of stability they may have had didn't, didn't wasn't enough for that experience and i know you've done some public speaking uh, over the last couple years on this topic and i'm curious what you've learned that has been most helpful for somebody who is experiencing economic loss and feels disturbed as a result.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, many people, you know, this is, this the last, the economic crisis we've just lived through um, has been uh, an opportunity to look at identity, safety, attachment, where we get our sources of strength from, What's most important to us, those five things have been some of the lessons that people have been learning through the, through this crisis um, the essence of of the essence for me is uh, trust and safety, and what do you really trust and why you know do you trust life because you have a big bank account um, What could be another source of trust? And so, what's happened is, is, and uh, I'm very sensitive about talking to this because this has been, you know, this is extremely painful for um, for people, and still is very painful for people. At some stage, though, there there is a time for making meaning out of what people have gone through, and some of the things that people have been learning have been learning that the the idea that Safety, the safest place in the world is when you are authentic. Mm. The deepest trust you can have in the world is in the part of you that doesn't change. And those two things um, have been very powerful for people. For example, I... I used to think you know life was safe for me because you know, I had a job and a career, and actually what was most rich and and wonderful for me was the time I was actually the most unsafe when I left from banking, a struggling first-time author, you know teaching meditation to companies when nobody wanted it. Um, but that was a time where there was no no external safety, there was only internal safety um and there was a lot of authenticity um and those two things were were like compasses for me is that is that is that helpful
0: oh, it's a, yeah it's it's a wonderful answer i i'm curious in your own words what have you found that doesn't change
1: <laughs> what what i found that does not change is there's is a part of me that just that never changes that it is constant and deep and timeless and when i can allow myself to directly experience that part then it infects the part of me that does change and is worried about change and infects it in a in in a beautiful way gives it gives me perspective
0: and then finally, Mark, uh, one final question. Our, our program's called Insights at the Edge, and I'm curious what you would identify as your own current edge, whether that's a, a question you're asking or sort of something you're personally exploring.
1: Mm. My edge is how much can I contribute? How much can I di- give? How big a difference can I make? That's my edge.
0: Wonderful. I've been speaking with Mark Thornton. He's the author of a Soundstrue book called Meditation in a New York Minute: Super Calm for the Super Busy. And Soundstrue's also published an audio series with Mark by the same name, which offers the meditation techniques that he teaches in Meditation in a New York Minute: On-the-Spot Techniques for a Very Deep Quick Transformation. Mark, thank you so much for being with us and for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it.
1: Tell you, beautiful, my pleasure.
0: Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.